Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the University of Sydney. I'm Meredith Hall, Program Manager for Sydney Ideas. Before we begin proceedings tonight, I would like to uh, pay my respect to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation on whose land we meet tonight. The, I'm very pleased to welcome to the Sydney Ideas series tonight Les Mailzer, who is co-chair-elect of the National Congress of Australia's First People. It was actually uh, two years ago that we had the first Sydney Ideas um, event with um, Vicky Greaves as part of the Indigenous Symposium, the first Sydney Ideas event in this uh, venue of the, the University of Sydney. So it's wonderful to be back two years later and the Sydney Ideas program is still going very strong. The format for uh, tonight's lecture is a 45-minute presentation by a guest speaker and then we'll hand around a microphone for questions. We are recording the lecture and the questions for later podcast on the university website and that's why we do ask you to use the microphone for your questions. And we also have APAC um, filming the event tonight as well. I'd now like to introduce, uh, your, I guess, the host for this evening who is Vic Lewis um, from the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. Thanks. Thank you very much, Meredith, um, and thanks everyone for being here. Um, it's been a very uh, stimulating couple of days. We're not done yet, um, but it's been indeed a very big privilege. Um, I'd like to reiterate um, Meredith's comments, extending my thanks to the custodians of this land, that is, of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's with great pleasure that I can introduce Les Malta, co-chair-elect of the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples. Les is from the um, Bachelor Gabi Gabi peoples of southeast Queensland. He has extensive experience in campaigning for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander riots and has represented community interests at local, state, national and international levels. Les is a former head of the Queensland Department of Aboriginal and Islander Affairs and is, currently, and is currently chairperson of the Foundation for Aboriginal and Islander Research Action. I like those two words together, research action. And in that role, he is a delegate to United Nations Fora on Indigenous Issues. In 2008, he won the Australian Human Rights Award and his contribution to coordinating Indigenous people's advocacy for the adoption of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People by the UN General Assembly is well known and respected. So thanks indeed, Les, for being here, giving us this unique privilege to hear from you. Les is going to pre be presenting um, a talk entitled Affirming Indigenous Knowledge as the Social Capital of Indigenous Peoples. And here gathered before us we have Indigenous peoples from all over the world, including Australia and Latin America. We have um, the unique uh, facility of interpreting so we can communicate, which is part of the spirit of what we're doing. I'd just like to thank um, my co-organisers, Dr Vicky Greaves and Dr Fernanda Peñalosa, who couldn't be here today, 
but um, Fernanda would extend her welcome less. She's just recently had a baby, so um, it's a little bit hard for her to get around. So without any further ado, let's welcome Les, who will come to the podium. Uh, is your interpretation just to Spanish or is it another language? It's just into Spanish, okay. yeah. and you don't have to slow down in particular. Yeah, I'll see how it goes. Sometimes I'll race all that. Uh, yes, uh, hello everyone. I'd like to um, begin, of course, by acknowledging the peoples of this land, particularly the Gadigal Aora peoples, the true owners of the land, uh, to pay my respects to them for the honour to be able to speak on their country and pre present my credentials, of course, as a Gabi Gabi Bachelor person from uh, in Queensland. Um, I'm very pleased to have the opportunity to speak to you um, in this lecture and uh, the topic will be very broad but it'll be talked about Indigenous knowledge, how important it is, but also that it is a large part of our future survival as, in, as Aboriginal peoples, Torres Strait Islander peoples in Australia and for Indigenous peoples around the world. I just wanted to recollect looking out the window that um, in year 2000 when Australia was hosting the Olympic Games, I was about 20 metres over there camped in a protest camp um, about the uh, rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And so I didn't realise that we were so close and people were able to look down and see where we were camping. Um, and I remember one particular night while things were going on out at the Olympic Park that there was a huge electrical storm going on. So I'm lying in this tent on the ground with lightning striking all around me, thinking, is this my fate? <laughs> so uh, it's interesting to have these memories. I'm going to play a little bit with technology, I think. I'm using an iPad, and um, I'm trying to break it in to my everyday use so I don't have to carry so much papers around. Okay, there we go, we're firing away. <clears throat> what I want to do, because my recent um, experiences have been working on the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, when, particularly when it was adopted uh, four years ago at the United Nations, and in the four years since then I have been concentrating on how to have the Declaration transported into the everyday situation that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have in Australia. At the last minute, I decided I would stand for elections to this new organisation, the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples. Up until the time that I made the application, I was a heavy critic of the structure, saying that it didn't have a mandate coming from the community, that um, there were a lot of weaknesses and failures in the structure. Um, and that it would be a problem for the people. However, on the very last day the application was due in, I was still in Geneva, I very quickly filled out an application form to be a member, then I filled out an application form to stand for elections, then I had to post them straight to Australia for witnesses to sign and put in money in the bank for me to be standing as a candidate, and fortunately I got in. Um, I got into the contest and I also managed to um, win the uh, election for the national chairperson and of course in making that decision to 
be, uh, become the national co-chair of this new organisation, the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples, I have placed upon myself a commitment to make this a true national representative body for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and of those things that I felt were weak failures and uh, errors in structures to set about changing those. So only time will tell, A, that if I have set out on that agenda and B, if I have been successful. However, let me say, now five months into the job, I think that from my point of view, things are on course. I'm pleased that the members of the board with whom I serve, seven other members, are very good people and are not shy or scared of talking about issues of sovereignty and rights and so on and are quite prepared to campaign on that issue. Also, while I'm talking on the National Congress, I've said over and over again that the intention is that this body is not an advisory body to government. That's not its role. We're there to, in fact, empower our communities to be the decision makers. And the Congress is not here to displace organisations at the national level or any other level or displace the voice of community. As I said, we want to actually be a part of the empowering it. And we don't want to be saying that the Congress has the position that this is the way it should be or that is the way it should be. We want to try and use the language that this is the way that the community wants it to be. And if you want to talk about health, then talk to those health structures. If you want to talk about uh, administration of justice, then talk to the legal structures. Bearing in mind that over a period of time, many of our people in the community have lost faith in those structures also. And so one of the things that the Congress will need to do is to re rebuild where we started out many, many years ago to, f to fight for um, our rights and justice. Um, it's actually timely that in a, few in a month's time, on the 26th of January of 2012, it will be the 40th anniversary of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy. The setting up of the Tent Embassy in the front of the Parliament under very difficult circumstances where police were used a number of times to try and remove the protest, remove the embassy, and in the process it was what became is history and legend that the Aboriginal Tent Embassy still exists at that site in front of the old Parliament House and it continues to be defended by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples each time there's a proposal to remove it. So the 40th anniversary is a very significant time for us to say what was pursued 40 years ago, um, has it been achieved, has it been given up, has it been lost? And we're hoping that there will be people who will come to Canberra during that week and participate in those discussions. The Congress itself is going to host a two-day symposium to talk about sovereignty and self-determination, again, how to establish what is the political contract, the relationship between the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and the nation of Australia. And we hope that that will reinvigorate the dialogue and the objectives that were there 40 years ago. <clears throat>
Um, having talked a bit about the Congress, so you know a little bit about the Congress, you know a little bit about me, I'll just give you a little bit more of my background that I started out working when I was 19 years old in 1972 with the Commonwealth Government. Um, up until then I had matriculated to university, I had very good education qualifications but I couldn't get a job anywhere. I started one year in engineering at university. I left because I was the only Aboriginal person in the university then, very different from today. And um, there was a lot of racism in the engineering school. And, but when I did try to get work, I kept on getting knocked back for all various reasons. And I ended up working just in meatworks. So despite my good education, my ability to do university, the only work that Australian society could find for me was in the meatworks. And that's when the, um, the Commonwealth Government found out that I existed and came and asked me if I would go and work in the Aboriginal employment area in the Commonwealth Government. And that began my development in what was going on in Australia around the country uh, with Aboriginal affairs and I became very much more orientated towards the political situation in which our people were experiencing on the street. So um, during those years, in the early 70s, um, my life became a series of street marches and particularly pickets and protests. I remember distinctly a number of times having to stop evictions of, of families being kicked out of um, these slum houses, the ones that they, they would charge Aboriginal families huge prices to let them stay in and then when it suited the person to put their new building on after they've gotten all the money out of the people, it's just to victim and throw all their furniture on the street. So many, many times in those years, those were the sorts of protests, not the only protests, but the sorts of protests that I remember at the time. And um, I actually spent, when I worked it out, looking backwards out in the last 40 years, uh, about 15 years working in the Commonwealth Government, going to very senior level in the government, four years working in the Queensland Government, where I was the head of the Aboriginal Island Affairs, and the rest of the time working in community-based organisations and including in national representative bodies. Uh, the, I was the Deputy, uh, sorry, I was the Secretary General of the National Aboriginal Conference in the 1980s. This was the body that was abolished by the government when it protested over the lack of land rights in Australia. And I was also um, an executive advisor to the chairman of ATSIC 2000 to 2002 to Jeff Clark um, before I started concentrating on the international work that I was doing. So let me uh, continue then in, into um, the, the, the topic, this, in, uh, this issue of, of um, how we understand and respect Indigenous knowledges. The, I'd like to take it from the perspective of the Declaration because it's a document I know so well. I'm actually going to go through looking at what's happening in terms of Indigenous knowledges and what is in the Declaration in that same context. First off, I want to say that the winds of change is blowing around the world and through Australia, whether people know it or don't know it. In 2007, a very, very significant thing happened in the United Nations. Um, so significant, it should be on the timelines. The United Nations was formed after World War II in 1945. They have timelines about the Declaration on Human Rights that came out. They have timelines about um, various treaties that came out, particularly in the 1960s and so on. But one of the significant events that should happen is in 2007, the adoption by the General Assembly 
of the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. The Declaration took 25 years to come to fruition. It was the end of one long particular political campaign by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It's not the only campaign. Um, the campaigns of Aboriginal, uh, of Indigenous peoples um, began 400 years ago when Columbus landed in the Americas, when the um, European powers decided that the rest of the world was for their exploitative interests, um, and the Europeans decided that they would create empires and colonies out of the original peoples that existed around the world. When World War II concluded, through what was very inspirational leadership at the time, including from Australia, from Dr. Evatt, was to establish a global organisation for peace and security. And it was understood at that time after the war that peace and security wasn't just about getting rid of the bad states and holding up the good states. It was actually about recognising the rights of peoples to self-determination. So I'm not sure of the exact number now, but I, I, I think it was about 40 to 50 states made up the first structure of the United Nations. But within a few years, another 30 to 40 states had joined them. And these were particularly states that were coming from colonised areas, Africa, Asia and South America. We now have 190... I think we're up to four, with um, 194 states in the United Nations. Um, and there's a general view that most of the world has now joined the United Nations uh, through that membership. So even though the United Nations consists of government people as delegates sitting there and having discussions and making decisions, the United Nations is not a body belonging to governments, it's a body belonging to peoples. And the Charter of the United Nations starts out with we the peoples and goes on to set all the terms of the United Nations. So the concept has always been that it is peoples who have the right of self-determination and it is peoples who have um, control of international governance of the world. We know of course that the reality is that it is states or governments that go to those meetings and that there's a big distance between what people want on the ground in their own countries and what goes on in the United Nations. And we're seeing some very graphic examples of that with the Arab Spring, with the fight now of people on the streets defying their governments um, and, and in fact effectively overturning the governments um, a process which is most likely going to consider, con continue around the world, particularly where there are dictatorships and so on. So the movement of peoples and the interest of peoples is a large part of how this world is supposed to operate. After World War II, specific procedures were set up to decolonise the world. There, there are sections in the Charter. I did, didn't bring information about that to cite it to you, but there are sections in the Charter which talk about um, non-self-governing territories, and there were organisations established to help non-self-governing peoples achieve their independence. And, of course, we know a little bit about that, including that in our neighbours in the Pacific, 
Um, there are a number now of independent uh, Pacific Island states, uh, um, some of whom have a population of no more than 10,000 people in them. We have seen Africa decolonise, uh, at least to the extent of removing the European powers. And we've seen um, more recently changes happening in South America and Central America. Um, and those changes look like they're continuing to happen. However, in the decolonisation of the world, not much attention was given to the situation of Indigenous peoples. And we know that there is approximately, or there's at least 350 million Indigenous peoples in the world um, in up to 80 different countries. And as I said, there was a particular campaign. It started back in the early, in 1920s, when a chief from the Haudenosaunee people in North America went to Geneva, where the League of Nations was established, and sought to have the floor of the United Nations, to speak on the floor, uh, League of Nations, sorry, to talk about the rights of his peoples and how the treaties had been broken by the governments uh, that were originally agreed. He never got the opportunity to speak on the floor of the League of Nations, but nevertheless he got the attention of many of the people of Europe um, and was able to run public campaigns in Geneva and elsewhere about the struggle for the Haudenosaunees for their rights. Around the same time, one or two years later, there was also a Maori prophet called Ratanga, uh, Ratna, sorry, who also went overseas, but this time to the United Kingdom and to petition the king that the Maori people should be given their rights and recognition as sovereign peoples. It also happened in Australia, not with delegations going overseas, but letters that went to the Prime Minister urging the Prime Minister to bring up with the League of Nations the right of the Aboriginal peoples, Torres Strait Islander peoples in Australia to have determination, citizenship rights, but also self-determination and decision-making. That's the history, but that campaign continued to the point where in the, particularly from the beginning of the 1970s, Indigenous peoples in countries like Australia, in New Zealand, in North America and in the uh, Nordic countries, Sweden, Finland uh, and Norway and Denmark, started to meet at a global level to talk about the struggles that they're having as peoples. And as a result of that, um, continued meetings happened between Indigenous peoples and the realisation that everyone was fighting the same battles and in the same circumstances. And also a clear recognition that at the global level, the rights of Indigenous peoples should be acknowledged. That led then to efforts to get into the United Nations and to get hearings um, within the United Nations structures by Indigenous peoples. And this was achieved in 1982. I won't go into the details of the structures, but the UN created what is called Working Group on Indigenous Populations, and that working group from 1982 onwards set about um, trying to get issues of Indigenous peoples addressed by the United Nations. And it was clear from the start, and it was the call from the Indigenous delegations at the start, that there ought to be an international human rights standard created, a treaty created, which set out the rights of Indigenous peoples. 
and that became the process, the start of that tw long 25 years in the United Nations to draft and get through a document called the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. So in 2007, the document was adopted formally by the General Assembly. It was a struggle, and I'm not going to talk about what that struggle was, nor about how there was efforts made by a number of countries, including Australia, to sabotage that process right at the very last moment. But when the General Assembly adopt, adopted the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, what a lot of people still don't pick up and don't understand is that very, very significant statement. And the statement is that Indigenous peoples are peoples equal to all other peoples of the world. And if you match that up with what I said earlier about the structure of the United Nations and the emphasis upon peoples have a holding the right to self-determination. So that is the significance. That's the thing that makes all the difference and which I'll base the rest of my presentation, is that Indigenous peoples are now, through that decision by the General Assembly, the resolution to adopt the declaration, are now peoples. That we call ourselves Indigenous peoples or refer to Indigenous peoples is not so relevant. It's the fact that we are peoples. And the, I think the use of the word indigenous, peoples makes us equal to all other peoples. And in fact, as the Secretary General of the United Nations said, welcome to the family of the United Nations when he addressed the um, Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues, um, a meeting of about 800 Indigenous delegations from around the world early in 2008. Welcome to the family of the United Nations. So we can just refer to ourselves as peoples with the right of self-determination if we want to. But by referring to ourselves as Indigenous peoples, we also join in as a collective of self-like-interested groups around the world. And that collective is a very interesting one. For example, over 80% of the world's cultural diversity is held by the Indigenous peoples of the world. Indigenous peoples are located in most of the worlds where the pristine environment still survive. So whatever the regions are, whether they're um, deserts, whether the highest mountaintops, whether they're in the Arctic regions, whether they're in the tropics, whether in vast areas, whether in small islands and so on, where the pristine environment is still maintained is the same place where Indigenous peoples continue to be. And Indigenous peoples, in fact, as we all, I think, can appreciate, have for their entire existence um, during the attempted colonisation of the world fought for the territories, fought for their uh, lands and resources, fought for their continuing connection to their country. And it's that reason, it's because of those fights and because of those reasons that um, the situation of the world today still holds that biological diversity, but it is because that Indigenous peoples are there that, that has achieved that result. And there are many other reasons as to why Indigenous peoples collectively um, will continue to work together and so on. One of those, of course, being in all instances, Indigenous peoples are um, located in the boundaries of states, of governments, of nations, which are acknowledged by the UN. And in all those situations, the Indigenous peoples are marginalised, not only with their lands being taken, not only economically, but marginalised socially, marginalised culturally, and most significantly marginalised politically. Indigenous peoples have very little power, very little voice in the countries where they are located. 
So again, I go back to say the point that 2007 represents a significant change, a significant winds of change. Now, I came back to Australia to push for those rights in the Declaration to be acknowledged by the government and also to be taken up by our own communities because in our own communities there are many people who do not appreciate what the rights of peoples are about, what self-determination is about, and are unwittingly still advancing the causes of government and colonisation. So the task ahead for us, and it's not just in Australia, it's everywhere, is for the Indigenous peoples to now go about setting the changes. Now I mentioned very briefly about political changes happening in Latin America. In fact, there are very significant changes in Latin America um, you're probably aware that in Bolivia, for example, it's an indigenous person, a member of the indigenous peoples, that is now um, the president of Bolivia. Um, and similarly, in other parts of Latin America, the push to recognise the rights of indigenous peoples um, is becoming very strong and becoming a, an important area for how government is structured and how government goes about and does its business. So we will see, no doubt, significant developments happening in Latin America which will be reported around the world. For example, um, a recent court case in Beli um, Belize um, by the Inter-American Inter Court of Justice, um, I don't think it's Court of Justice or Court of Human Rights, um, ruled that a mining company had to withdraw from the land of the Maya people because they had not gone through the proper processes to get the approval of the Maya people to mine on their countries. So here you have a regional court um, making a finding in accordance with the rights of Indigenous peoples to own, control their territories and resources. Now I'm going to go to the... Um, oh, the other thing about the... Besides the recognition of peoples, and I'll, I'll bring more of that forward, there's also the recognition of that diversity I was talking about, that th there's an appreciation in the Declaration um, how rich um, Indigenous peoples are in culture, but also how diverse uh, Indigenous peoples are in terms of culture. Now, before I go on to some articles that are in the Declaration, I wanted to talk about the situation here in Australia that um, and a little bit about my experience and my early upbringing and experiences with uh, Aboriginal culture. I was brought up in a semi-urban area, um, but I was very much living amongst Aboriginal people and families and, still, and being taught very much by elders the things that go on. And as I'm sure you will have discussed in this conference in the last two days, this symposium, um, there's a completely different way in which our people see the world. Um, and for the Aboriginal people, I'll talk about Aboriginal, I won't say keep saying Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, um, but for Aboriginal people who are not migrants to Australia, who are not people who arrived 40,000 years ago through a land bridge and so on, are in fact people who are born out of the land, who are born out of the spirit of the land. The spirit has come to, into being as the person, and the person is not... Um, wholly and solely defined as the human race, but in fact belonging to the animals and belonging to the area from which they grow up in. And it is these sorts of upbringings and learnings 
that create a total, totally different vision of the world in which we live in. You know, I talked about when we look out the window, we all know when we look out there people see different things. But I can tell you now, for example, when uh, an Aboriginal person looks out that window, they're just as likely to see an elephant out there because things like shapes uh, um, are more important than seeing the details uh, and so on. And in fact, may even see things out there that are not even visible to, normally visible to the eye. So, and I had an experience just recently where I had to go to Arakoon and interview a number of elderly people because of their claims that they were making for stolen wages. And it was very difficult sitting down with those elders to get the details of their employment because they could never tell me precisely what year, when did they start work, how long did they work at, at a place, um, how much money they received, etc., etc. The concept of the numbers and the exact pro, 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 uh, precise dates and so on was impossible to understand. And I can remember one elder, for example, saying, well, where did you first work? And he would say, well, I worked at the um, sawmill. And I said, oh, how long did you work there? Oh, he said, it'd be either a long time or short time. A long time, he would say one year. Short time, he would say one month. And then the next place where he worked and so on. So he would try and sequence the different places he worked, but it'd either be one year, one month. Now, I knew, of course, very well that that was just short time, long time that he was seeing. So we got around that problem by asking other questions like, um, when did you marry? And he could tell me exactly what the year was he married and where were you working at that time? So very, they'd match it up and say, that was the year he started working there. When were your children born, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So finding those connections, which he knew very well, you know, the, forming the marriage, having children or other things that happened were very easy for him to recall, but to talk about the volume of time and precise dates and so on was just short time, long time, or some something of that nature. And it was just amazing in talking to these people to see how their mind was working and how they were visualising and framing things, because it was not inferior, it was not um, dumb, it was not ignorance, it was just a completely different way in which they defined their lives and defined their activities and what they were doing. And I felt so sad at the time, this was at Arakoon, where there's a big effort being made now to force kids to attend the schools. If they miss more than three days a year without a note from their parents and a good reason, then their family gets put on income management. Um, so they're forcing the kids to go into the schools, and the schools are the schools that we all know, big wire fences all around, buildings in there, forced to go in through a gate at a certain time, sit in the rooms for a certain time, go out and have your lunch, run around, go back into the rooms, and then leave at a certain time. Completely a rigid institutional form of education, and this is the education that the children were going through. So any of those children, and, and some of the younger men who I interviewed, could very easily answer my questions. They could say, it was three years, or it was 18 months, or something. So they had gained the Western view of the world and were able to think and speak in that language, but it was quite clear in the process they had lost another view, lost another value 
of the world and how they, they saw things. <clears throat> now, it's a crude example, uh, but it's very real. And I'm sure there's many, many people in the room who could join when we sit around a campfire and have a conversation. So I was having one just a couple of days ago about talking to people who had died, about seeing people, about knowing things that had not yet happened, or about knowing things that were a long way away. Uh, all of this, it's uh, an experience that we either have shared and joined in ourselves, or we have talked to people who have had those experiences. And I can say for one, we had an uncle, I only lived three houses away from him, who was always absolutely amazing. He could always tell us a day or two before when someone was going to visit. And he could always tell us when someone far away is not well. We would get the news later, not a day or two later, but he always knew this stuff and um, it was just absolutely amazing. Similarly, as I use that thing about visually, you look out there, we've got, um, we've got a knowledge of the fact of the ability of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to track. Um, and that, that's one of the skills that is probably not being passed on. But when you see a tracker at work, someone who knows their business, they're not necessarily seeing some mark on the ground or on a tree or something like that. They're actually seeing ahead of what this person they're following was doing. And again, I heard some stories recently along this lines of, in fact, I read, there's an article uh, a week ago, I think it was, about this famous tracker um, who not only could track someone that had been weeks ahead and follow them, but also knew when they came upon this person and would not, like if the person, he would say to the police that were with them, that person is over, over the hill. You go over the hill and you'll see that person. And he would not go over the hill. So he actually knew where this person was without having to see him or see any physical signs of it. And as I was starting out to say, a lot of his tracking, while he relied to some extent upon the physical signs, was also about sitting down and just looking and thinking about where this person went and what they did. And it's a lot of that contemplation uh, and so on that creates all that. I'm only giving these as examples. I'm sure there are other examples and better examples around about doing it. But I, I always, when I think about this, think of the tragedy that these things are being lost. You know, they're not being put away for later and so on. They're actually being lost. Um, you know, when Aboriginal kids were growing up, they would always track. It would be part of the games that they would do and they would always recognise it. And again, there was this example of this fellow who was trying to track someone that they didn't run down, but something like two years later was able to go to the police and say, that person's over there, because they saw the track again and recognised the track uh, of it. And these are the skills that... Um, and the knowledges that um, our people have acquired, um, it probably has no value in Western society. Um, you know, people would say, well, that's nice to know, but it's not going to get people through to a good job and so on. But in fact, I wonder what the future looks like and whether in fact those are the sort of skills that people are going to need. The ability to understand their environment, the ability to be able to anticipate and know and predict what's going on in their environment all through those knowledges. Um, so let me go on to, oh yeah, I was going to um, mention that this may not all be the stuff of myth, legends and fiction. And I firmly believed after that Arakoon experience that 
those people could see things that we cannot see, that in the Western mind and the Western thinking that we cannot see. They see something. Do they see another universe? I think so. Is that possible? Well, physics says it is possible. In fact, I was going to say that if you look at, and I'm going to read it here, level three, many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, if any of you are physicists in here and know what that's about. And I'll tell you what it means. It talks about parallel universes. And there are different concepts. I think there's four levels that are being looked at as to what the physical possibilities are. And level three is described as being parallel universes. It's all about parallel universe or meta-universes. Meta um, take place, in, level three minutes, they take place in the same space and time as our own universe. It means that you are constantly um, in contact with the level three universes. Every moment of your life, every decision you make causes a split of yourself into an infinite number of future selves, all of which are unaware of each other. So physics science says that, that I don't know where they say they do exist or must exist or whatever, but even Einstein himself um, was trying to prove this theory of the universes and how, in fact, we are living in parallel <coughs> to other lives and existence. And more and more is being said about that in these modern times. So it's quite possible that Indigenous peoples are able to think and see in another dimension or perhaps another universe, and that there are other senses that have been lost or are lost that are not being appreciated. I believe in that, and many of the people I talk to believe that those senses are there or have been there. So let's get back to the declaration talking about cultural diversity. In the declaration, um, there are 24 preambular paragraphs, and their preambular paragraphs generally state what is already known, already given. So they're just saying recognising this, acknowledging that, and so on. They're not operative paragraphs, they're just simply recalling or reminding. But there are, I've count here, um, seven preambular paragraphs which talk about the diversity of culture. And I'll give you an example of some of those. Preambular paragraph three says, affirming that all peoples contribute to the diversity and richness of civilizations and cultures which constitute the common heritage of mankind. So it's taken into account that indigenous peoples um, are in that context of the richness and diversity of humankind. Preambular paragraph seven says, recognizing the urgent need to, recognize, to respect and promote the inherent rights of indigenous peoples which derive from their political, economic so and social structures and from their cultures, spiritual traditions, histories and philosophies, especially their rise to the lands, territories and resources. So in that preamble, it particularly acknowledged the fact of the histories and the philosophies and so on. Um, I'm not sure of the remaining ones, which one I might um, also read out. But uh, paragraph, preamble paragraph 11 says, recognising that respect for Indigenous knowledge, culture and traditional practices contribute to the sustainable and equitable development and proper management of the environment. So there's a clear acknowledgement there that Indigenous peoples do actively contribute to the sustainable management of, of the global environment. And on it goes in there. So there's, as I said, there's seven specific preambular paragraphs which um, cover those areas in particular. 
also in there, there are most of the 46 operative articles are talking about what the right of self-determination is about. It's talking about Indigenous peoples are peoples, Indigenous peoples are peoples with the rights to development. Development includes political, social, economic and cultural development. Most interpretations that uh, we have in Australia about development is more about uh, close the gap policies of we can have health, education, employment equal to all other Australians, but not about our ability to develop politically, our ability to develop culturally, uh, etc. Um, and uh, in particular, Articles 3, 5 and 8, as we know, Article 3 says Indigenous peoples have the right to self-determination and by virtue of that right, they freely determine their political status and freely pursue their economic, social and cultural development. And Article 5 goes on to say Indigenous peoples have the right to maintain and strengthen their distinct political, legal, economic, social and cultural institutions while retaining their right to participate fully, if they so choose, in the political, economic, social and cultural life of the state. And the other one I want to refer to is in Article 8, which says uh, that states shall provide effective mechanisms for prevention of and redress for any action which has the aim or effect of depriving Indigenous peoples of their integrity as distinct peoples and of their cultural values or ethnic identities. So there's clear message in relation to that Indigenous peoples around the world have the right to make the decision to develop culturally and also that an obligation falls upon the states to support that. So the states can't just sit back and say, well, good luck, let's see how you turn out. States actually carry an obligation to see that Indigenous peoples are able to exercise those rights. <clears throat> Also in the Declaration, there are a number of articles which relate to education and science. Now, the, in the Western world, and the United Nations and, uh, carries this forward, uh, the things that we're concerned about in terms of Indigenous knowledge is generally falls under that area of education and science. And I don't have so much trouble about that termino terminology as long as we have a broader view of what science is about. And I mentioned before about the fact that some of the future physical facts that they'll find out, physics facts that they'll find out, may in fact verify and validate what Indigenous peoples have developed and known over thousands and thousands of years. Um, and I wanted to bring to your attention particularly about this because of education. Again, in Australia we've had this um, debate that our kids should attain the same levels of year 12 standard uh, outcomes, that our kids must attend schools, they must have access to preschools, and so on. Um, the intention is a good one, and I support the intention. But in fact, the uh, process and the outcomes are very, very dangerous if we don't rationalise with the governments what we're trying to achieve here. We're trying to achieve people who can cope in two worlds, people who can cope with a future that, uh, you know, that where, they, where they do seek work and have uh, employable skills and knowledge and so on. But at the same time, we also want to continue to exist as indigenous peoples, not be people who have indigenous descent, that our ancestors were Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. That's not... Um, 
an aspiration of peoples. It's an aspiration of an Australian person who might have had an Aboriginal great-grandmother and so on. Article 11 says Indigenous peoples have the right to practice and revitalise their cultural traditions and customs. This includes the right to maintain, protect and develop the past, present and future manifestations of their cultures. So we have the right to redevelop our manifestations. We have the right to um, bring manifestations that we had in the past into the present or to develop different manifestations in relation to the future. This is the right of any society. This is the right of any peoples. Article 12 says Indigenous peoples have the right to manifest, practice, develop and teach their spiritual and religious traditions, customs and ceremonies. The right to maintain, protect and have access in privacy to their religious and cultural sites. The right to use and control of their ceremonial objects and the right to the repatriation of human remains. I was going to leave out the re human remains thing out of this, but then I thought, no, isn't that something that Indigenous peoples are doing, which is challenging um, some of the concepts of the world about cultural rights? And I, I've been involved for many years in terms of fighting to get our ancestral remains returned from Australian museums and institutions and also from overseas. But part of the problem we have, and this is particularly in the UK with the Natural History Museum and some of the other bigger institutions, is that they're concerned about agreeing to the right to get back human remains because they're scared of handing back to the Egyptians um, the treasures that they took out of that area in the uh, late 1800s and early 1900s. Uh, we've heard about the Greek Elgon marbles uh, and various other things. We even There's even that one about the, um, the Scottish stone the, for the parliament, I forget what it's correctly called. They did return that back to Scotland, but for many years it was held down in England uh, and so on. So there's this reluctance um, to, uh, well, what I was trying to say was that the repatriation of human remains has sort of generated a value and a principle at the global level in relation to human remains, because there was a lot of things about, you know, bodies just being treated as bones uh, in a grave and so on and not attaching any other significance or spiritual value to those things. So I, I thought it, it's probably worthwhile keeping in there the repatriation of human remains, remains. Articles 13, Articles 14, Articles 15 and Articles 16 continue on in the same vein. Indigenous peoples have the right to dignity and diversity of their cultures, traditions, histories and aspirations. So all of this is pretty much what I think is the, the building stones on a rights basis, on a human rights basis, to Indigenous knowledges, to the fact that it, we have the rights as peoples to not just go and learn Western view of the world, but in fact to be able to develop and to manifest our view of the world and our cultures and, and our interpretations and so on, and to pass those on to our future generations and to guarantee the security of our survival as Indigenous peoples, not only over the last 10,000 years, 20,000 years, 40,000 years, but over the next 10,000 years, 20,000 years, and so on. Um, now, the next issue I was going to touch, which again relates to Indigenous peoples and the Declaration, is about, in, um, this is about the intellectual property aspects of Indigenous knowledge. Um, now, I know that a lot of the discussion about Indigenous knowledge is, is focused upon the fact that 
there ought to be other views, other education forms and so on about uh, Indigenous knowledge and that needs to be recognised by the state and society in general. But probably what is not appreciated fully yet is that our Indigenous knowledge is in fact being made into a commodity and marketed. And we do know, we do know this and we do have examples um, of, of where, like with the Bush Tucker Foods, of where the army was interested about how Aboriginal people lived off the land, created this project for the Bush Tucker man to go around and find out from the Indigenous peoples themselves how they survived in the country and to turn that into, first off into uh, manuals for the army, but secondly into uh, entertainment for the public and then later into a commercial uh, venture for the uh, person who'd been collecting those knowledges. So uh, that, that this exploitation now of the natural environment, of the biodiversity, or as it's termed in the treaties, as sustainable uh, development, um, is in fact looking very much to Indigenous people's knowledge, to traditional knowledge. And what is happening as we speak, and I can tell you that a Swiss drug company, I think, provided $30 million to the Griffith University in Queensland, to do a database of genetic information of the natural resources in Australia, and the university has been doing that. And in Australia, there is this policy that whoever is the owner of the land is the owner of the genetic resources on that land or the genetic material on that land. So that means that if Aboriginal people have title to the land, they have the ownership of the genetic material on their land. If non if farmers have title to their land, they have the rights to the genetic material on their land. And if the Crown has title, including in national parks, then the Crown has ownership. So very cleverly, this project by Griffith University is collecting tens of thousands of bits of information, or have collected it, in the Northern Territory, in Arnhem Land, on one side of the fence, one side of the boundary, not on the boundary side which is owned by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but on the other boundary side, which is owned by the Crown. Um, and so they've been able to pretty much, and CSIRO very actively doing this also, identifying the genetic information of the natural resources here. You might have heard some of these things. For example, CSIRO is learning how to get mud crabs to grow two extra sets of claws so they could harvest their claws. Um, if you know mud crabs, when you take the claws off, they regrow. So rather than waiting for another set of claws to grow, they they let them grow two sets of claws and harvest them in half the time or twice, twice as fast, and so on. So that's one example of genetic engineering that's going on. There's also um, the ability of the kangaroo, but not only the kangaroo, but other marsupials in Australia, to hold the development of the foetus. So that's been looked at very closely now to look at how to use this in medicine and in science and so on for an economic value and a benefit. There's also... Um, work being done in relation to seeds, um, plant materials and so on um, and how they can be marketed and in fact the CSIRO is giving that information when they discover this information to entrepreneurs, not Aboriginal Torres Strait people, entrepreneurs to help them to market this overseas um, to create another industry uh, for Australia. Um, 
The trouble about this, I mean, this is all very good and they're doing it, but the trouble all the drug companies have around the world is they're collecting all this information, they're trying to patent it, as we know they tried to even patent the human genome, um, and they're doing all of this, and they get these great databases, but they don't know what to do with it. They don't know what the value of knowing this is. And so this is where they're going back to Indigenous peoples to find out, oh, what do you use and how do you use it, particularly medicines, you know, and, uh, you know, marketing of uh, there's a particular leaf that will stop blood, uh, to, will clot a blood flow, for example, or something to heal, heal uh, another wound or, or so on. Um, this is the sort of information they need to know to connect up what that genetic information is with the purpose and the value of it is. It's, you know, the obvious one is about quinine, how the, they discovered quinine will fight the malaria bug. And um, now quinine is widely marketed, but the people from whom they obtain this information have no value from it. So very quickly, because it's now quarter past, and I'll, I'll start to wrap this up. Um, articles 31, 32, and 34, and 36 deal with intellectual property rights of Indigenous peoples and traditional knowledge. For example, Indigenous peoples have the right to maintain, control, protect and develop their cultural heritage, traditional knowledge and traditional cultural expressions, as well as the manifestations of their sciences, technologies and cultures. Um, Indigenous peoples have the right to determine and develop priorities and strategies for the development and use of their lands, territories and their resources. So those articles are in there which deal with these rights. Now, why this is so critical is because I've been involved for a number of years in these negotiations that are going on under the Convention on Biological Diversity, and it is to develop what they call access to genetic resources and benefit sharing. And so they're looking at how, um, how there are not going to be national boundaries to anywhere in the world getting access to genetic resources and then to be able to use those resources. But it has in there that word and benefit sharing to ensure that the benefits that derive out of that exploitation of that genetic resource goes back to the country that it, where it comes from. But in particular, fortunately in the convention, to the communities from where that information comes from. So um, that treaty which was finally negotiated, it's called the Nagoya Protocol in November last year, um, defends for a certain, to a certain level the traditional knowledge rights of the um, Indigenous peoples, but it leaves it up to the state to establish the mechanisms by which that knowledge is protected. You know, there's going to be registrations, there's going to be um, agreements that have to be uh, signed to a certain level. There's got to be clarity about who are the communities that own that knowledge and how it's derived and so on. Now, of course, states have tried to develop this on themselves without involving Indigenous peoples, and they get into all sorts of problems. They don't know who, you know, the complexities in Australia in particular of how ownership rests in relation to genetic information and materials. So they've, they've, they've finished this protocol. Um, Australia hasn't yet signed it. It was supposed to sign it by November to become a party. It will sign it. And once Australia signs it, it will then have to create legislation in Australia to establish these mechanisms, what they call clearing houses and place checkpoints and so on to ensure that um, uh, that contracts are being made to access information that those contracts comply with the standards, particularly of the consent of the people who provided the knowledge, 
to make sure that there's not somebody over in another country who's exploiting something from Australia without having gone through the process and so on. So there's a lot going on around this whole thing, and it's a big industry. And the, and the next part to this story is that while that has happened under the Convention on Biological Diversity, you know, this access to find out about how to use these resources, and Australia has 15% of the world's biological diversity, and it's unique because it's been an isolated con continent for so long. So there's a lot of resources in Australia which can be um, potentially exploited uh, by these big multinationals. So it's the new mining, it's the new extractive industry that's going on. But the punch is this. It's not the only treaty. There's another treaty that's now being developed by the World Intellectual Property Organisation. And again, I've been attending those meetings since the year 2000. It, and it's, it's, a, it's a body called the Intergovernmental Committee on, Genetic on Intellectual Property and Genetic Resources, Traditional Knowledge and Folklore. My mouthful. And they were supposed to conclude a treaty previously, like uh, a couple of years ago and then, a year, then last year. And now they're set to conclude it in uh, September. And why they've had difficulty for so long is they tried to do this treaty without Indigenous peoples. They tried to get it through before the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples was through. Now that the Declaration is there, they're trying to ignore the Declaration is there, that human rights as, as, a, as a global body, WIPO, and so on. But they're having hiccups all the way in how to get this through without properly engaging the Indigenous peoples in the process. They have three more meetings to happen. I think that'll be in February, May and July. And at the end of that time, there will most likely be a treaty. We don't know if it's going to be a binding or a non-binding treaty upon governments in relation to access to genetic resources and access to traditional knowledge. Now, I've been, I've sat outside the Minister for Innovations, Technologies and whatever it is, Senator Kim Carr. I've sat outside his offices for days, for months, to try and get an appointment to tell him that the government is going over in force to negotiate these treaties, but they're not assisting any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to engage in the process at all. I've been doing it all out of my own cost. And that, um, he's too busy, he's too busy. So from Christmas last year, and I think the last time I tried was about April this year, for that whole period from December to April, he was too busy to, uh, to meet with me to talk about the, the critical thing of that treaty. Okay, so let me um, finish and at least give you a little bit of time for for questions and all this. So my message has basically been um, that Indigenous knowledge is, is going to be the capital of Indigenous peoples into the future, whether it's for its own purposes, our own social, our own developmental purposes, or whether it's for things like um, the development of, of drugs or uh, uses of traditional knowledge for sciences or, or, or whatever, um, it, that which makes it economic capital and so on. Uh, and that we need to really look at how to firm up this concept about Indigenous knowledge. It's not just about traditional knowledge, you know, which is a, a, a lesser term. Uh, and I, I had this argument in the last couple of days about how t people tend to keep on pushing the Aboriginal and Torres Strait people into the past. We were, but we're no longer those people uh, with the descendants of the, the first peoples and things like that. You know, it's uh, awful language. Uh, so, in, in the knowledges and the education and the development of the sciences, and remember I mentioned CSIRO has a large stake in this, um, is really, really important and valuable to Indigenous peoples on a number of different le levels. And so we need to take the concept of Indigenous knowledges and we need to start talking more amongst ourselves on that and also more application. And I talked about those things that we're 
losing, lost, or at risk of losing, and including languages, I'm sure you would have talked about languages, but that viewpoint of the world, that viewpoint of the world, I mean, I don't like the capitalist viewpoint of the world, and there's people who don't like that. I like the indigenous peoples, the Aboriginal peoples' viewpoint of the world, which is about we're from Mother Earth. We are spiritually bonded to everything around us, that we are part of an obligation, that we live by a natural law. We can't break those laws. We can't remake those laws. We can't twist them to suit our purposes. We are part of those. And I think it's that sort of viewpoint that we have to bring back into this right that we have now that we are peoples of the world, now that we have the rights of self-determination and decision-making. Um, we've got a lot of work to do ahead of us now amongst ourselves and also with the states. Thanks very much. You can hear me now, right? It takes a little bit of time to come up. Thank you very much, Les, for that uh, great panoramic and um, informative multi-layered presentation, um, which has raised a lot of possibilities and potential paths, but has also, notably towards the end of your presentation, um, alerted us to some really important risks. Yeah? Um, as we think about what Indigenous knowledges constitute um, for Indigenous people, but as they are also looked upon increasingly in this critical phase. Um, and this is something that is threaded through our conversations, indeed, most pointedly in the realm of education, um, but um, there are some really important interconnections when you think about um, what you've talked about with, um, you know, in terms of social capital, in terms of cultural capital, um, and uh, you know, the mobilisation of those things, but potential incursions, the spaces that are being opened up by new forms of recognition, which are kind of um, reiterating what is already, you know, a principle that has circulated amongst peoples for quite some time within their own organisations and their, and their own political efforts. But of course, you know, latterly is uh, sort of seeping upwards or entering into new arenas. So now I'd like to invite some questions and comments, uh, engagements that you may have, differing points of view as a welcome as well, because what we've been talking about in this symposium is not about necessarily just agreeing. Um, you know, that this is a space for differing opinions, uh, differing perspectives, and um, and so on. So, um, I invite questions. Paul, I'll bring the microphone up to you. Liz, whilst I appreciate your great effort nationally and internationally, uh, I also was involved. So our time frames don't necessarily overlap, but in other ways they do. But my question is to you is simply this. I don't believe that the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples has got legal jurisdiction on Australia because there is no obligation on the, on the Commonwealth of Australia to give effect to uh, the treaty as it stands because one of the things that was left out of it was the recognition by the United Nations that member states had to give domestic jurisdictions to these treaties. And the reason why I ask this question is in relation to a specific example using the Australian native title legislation, an Art Court decision in 1996, which I'm sure you are aware of, known as Yorta Yorta, when the 
High Court says that the Aboriginal applicants could not obtain the benefit of native title because Aboriginal people were in the process of reinventing history and reinventing culture that was not in existence on the day that Cook arrived. So how do Aboriginal people overcome once again this Eurocentric view vis-a-vis -vis native title applications? Thanks, uh, Paul. Uh, I think everyone appreciates that there's not a short answer to that. In fact, it's another lecture. Um, but, and that is part of what I'm saying is the work now to be done in Australia is to actually see the declaration come into effect. It is a declaration, it's not a treaty. So no country had to sign on to it to say that they will now implement this in the law. However, um, it's also understood, it hasn't been fully argued or, or properly argued yet, that the rights that are in the declaration are no new human rights. They are already rights which have been long, rec long recognised and rights which have been enjoyed by all populations except Indigenous peoples. The right to self-determination, for example, has been enjoyed by the nation of Australia from 1901. And inside of that, the right to choose their representatives, the right to be involved in making decisions, etc. all these rights are there. But Indigenous peoples have been denied those rights. So the first part of the answer basically rests upon the fact that there are no human rights. The Declaration doesn't create these new rights. You therefore find that in the existing human rights treaties, and I think there's seven or eight major human rights treaties, seven of which Australia has ratified, um, or, and three of those in particular carry many of these rights. The three I refer to are the two covenants, the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, Covenant on Economic, Social, Cultural Rights, and the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination. And so you're actually able to look at an article that's in the Declaration and see that it exists in one of these treaties. Um, and you can actually argue that the right, for example, the right to self-determination is Article 1 of the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and Article 1 of the Covenant on Economic, Social, Cultural Rights. And remember my point that the declaration adopted by General Assembly says Indigenous peoples are peoples, equal to all other peoples of the world. So that translates into those two covenants which Australia has ratified. Of course, you've got to go through the, as Paul well knows um, from his experiences, that you've got to go through the processes of engaging courts and legal arguments, that the courts love to twist and ignore certain information and, and so on. And um, uh, the, the uh, functioning of the courts is part of the challenges that we have. So, you know, often we can't rely upon the parliaments to decide to do do the right thing under its obligations to the United Nations. And another factor which I think is to, to Paul's point is the United Nations cannot make any country do anything. It cannot make a country pass a law or apply a certain thing. It can only require the company, uh, the, the country to sign on to the treaty and to try to live up to its obligations under there. I'll leave it at that. Um, because it goes on a lot further than that. But part of the process of what we're trying to do is lay the groundworks for these rights to be found in law in the treaties that Australia has already signed. There's a few other problems. For example, the Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights has not been implemented in Australian law. So even though Australia signed it, I think back in 1967 uh, was when they signed that covenant, they have not enacted legislation to put that covenant into Australian law. In a lot of other countries, it automatically goes into law. Once, it, once the country signs a treaty, it becomes part of the law, and the courts use it to interpret. 
But in Australia, because it's a common law country, the government has to pass the legislation to put that treaty into effect in the legal system. So the courts, therefore, um, don't have to use the treaties when they make their interpretations. And I'll finish up with one more point, is the courts have themselves have a moral obligation to look at the treaties that Australia has signed when they make their findings. And in some sense, that's what the Mabo High Court decision did in 1992. It relied upon developments that had happened overseas. But remember that the Mabo decision in Australia was 50 years behind the same decision in Canada. Why does it take 50 years for the law to find in Australia what has already been found in Canada? But it's a, it's a, it is a big discussion, uh, as I said. But I, I'm, I'm going to continue to argue that there is a legal path that, um, that is available, carefully traversed. It, it, you can't just rush in and start filing things in the court. Okay, um, we do have some time for a couple of questions. I'm also conscious of the fact that it's already half past seven, but um, we want to keep um, people engaged. So next we have Elisa Longcon, who's um, a Mapuche from Chile and one of our international guests. Yeah, uh, thank you for your speech. Um, it's very interesting for, for us as indigenous people from South America and also as Mapuche, uh, we believe in the self-determination. All of the nation have the right of self-determination, but we have a big problem of the state. The state is very old structure. It's a racist, it's a racism. So it, it doesn't give us the participation the self-determination include the right to control yourself. And my question is, does the indigenous people here have the possibility to, to take the decision inside the parliament? And my other question is, are you thinking about to have your own institutions uh, to control the knowledge? For instance, in Mexico, there is, they have the National Institute for Languages that helps to plan the languages, and we don't have those institutions in my country, and we are claiming for that. We believe, we believe that we need it. So my question is, what do you, what the Aboriginal people here think about that? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I can give some answer to that, but there's probably other people who can provide better information on some of that question. But I, uh, first off, I know of situations in Chile, and I have talked to representatives of the Chilean government at UN meetings and so on. Of course, I also know the struggle that the people of um, Rapa Nui are having with the Chilean government about recognition of their rights in relation to Rapa Nui. So um, I'm, I'm um, familiar a little bit with the Mapuche uh, situation. Um, in terms of the institutions, do we have them and what we're doing? Um, other people have to answer that, I think. But I am well aware that there are something like 560 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people employed in universities, mostly in academic roles. Um, and that in most universities, there's a particular part of the campus which is dedicated to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander studies or resources and coordination. Um, plus, there are other resources I think universities receive but don't necessarily pass on to 
the um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in there. But for me, I think that's a huge resource to have 560 people who are working in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander education, tertiary education, at all of the campuses uh, around Australia um, is a resource and can work well if there's a degree of coordination. Um, but it's not for me to say what they should or shouldn't be doing. I think it's for the for the networks that operate in there um, about that. Um, in that sense, you know, we we are deprived, as everywhere is, about resources to get things done for ourselves. But at the same time, and I keep saying this when I talk in communities, if we think we've got it bad, we should go and look at some of the other situations. For example, we are 500,000 people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait people in Australia. That is the equivalent of all the Indigenous peoples spread across 14 nations in the Pacific region. Um, so as a resource, as a number, we're quite big. Um, and the, the amount of resources that come before us in programs and policies um, is big compared to some of the places that you go to. For example, radio is a good example of, um, we have over 100 radio stations which can broadcast quite widely. Um, 24 hours a day and so on. And when I was in Guyana, for example, there was one radio station that could transmit for a distance of 30 kilometres for about three or four hours because they had to rely upon a solar power and second-hand equipment. Um, so, you know, I try and explain that to our group to say don't confine yourself about your limitations because if we've got good media, if we've got access to tertiary education, if we've got this, if we've got that, we have resources, we just have to work out how to think um, in a coordinated way to get the benefit out of that. But, you know, uh, having said that, it's still a problem that poverty is crippling most of the Aboriginal people in Australia and people are um, having, not only people but communities are having problems with the functioning because of this patronised governance that comes in on, on our communities. We don't have we don't have forms of self-governance in Australia. We did have up until one or two years ago, but now all of our community governments are being merged into, into distant shire councils and, and being treated as mainstream shire councils and the ability of communities even to make their own decisions is disappearing very fast. So I haven't answered all your questions, but um, I think that there we, we definitely have a capacity of institutions and that's why I deliberately did read out that bit in the declaration about Indigenous institutions shall be recognised, and I, and I think we've got to really work hard on that. At what are our institutions? What belong to us, and what belongs to government? Uh, in that sense. Thank you. Um, now a question from Vanessa de Oliveira, who um, is residing and working in Finland, uh, but is actually very transnational, uh, Brazilian in origin, and uh, also has worked in New Zealand and other places. Thank you, Les, for your lecture. Um, I'm an educator, so my question is going to be a bit philosophical. <laughs> um, I understand the need to talk about economic value in terms of human beings, in terms of cultures, in terms of social networks, in societies grounded in private property ownership and accumulation. So my question is, what do you think will happen with indigenous knowledge systems potential to challenge property ownership and accumulation? if they start to be framed as capital? Uh, a very good question. And because you're asking me what I think will happen, I can't predict on this area. But 
there are bad things happening in Australia and the native title laws which Paul referred to is a part of those bad things because quite clearly um, the argument of land rights which we were pushing so strongly um, has been hijacked by a different argument um, which is looking at property and economics rather than the relationship that people have with country. And just as a small example, there are many agreements that are being negotiated where mining is uh, occurring. Um, and the agreements that are getting signed off are being often focused upon how much money the mining company gives to that group of people. The people themselves fight amongst themselves about who should be on that agreement, who's not allowed to be on that agreement. Um, they see themselves as getting money going into their bank account. Um, but what they don't see is that the agreement they're signing is giving up all their rights. And what they don't see is that, I'm not aware of any, I think there might be a couple, but there's not many, uh, and we have hundreds of agreements, um, are about benefits, about sharing benefits. It's all about a buyout of the rights and interests of, the, of those groups. So, so I think we've got a very bad situation going on in Australia with native title. I'm very disappointed that it's not high on the agenda of people's agitations and so on to, to change that um, situation. But unfortunately, there's been, I think, a appeal to people's, I'll call it greed and desire to see dollars rather than get other outcomes that Indigenous peoples really were fighting for under the land rights program. Okay, um, I think we probably have the time for another question. And um, would you like to introduce yourself? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lay person. <laughs> so just to lay, lay a person, so my question would be, my name is Chandran, and I'm actually a retired academic, uh, but not in this area. Uh, uh, my question really is, uh, in your view, uh, how does Australia compare with, let's say, other nations? Uh, for example, other, uh, the New Zealand and, and Canada, US, Anglo-Saxon nation, in terms of uh, honoring all these treaties and declarations. Uh, mm -hmm. Are we at bottom of the pack in your view, or are we middle of the pack, or are we at the head of the pack? I'd like to know. Thank you. Oh, uh, let me say, well, you're right saying a pack, and there's a pack of four hounds operating in the world, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and the US. They were the four countries that voted against the declaration. They campaigned very strongly, very strongly, and the rubbish that they were coming out with, absolute rubbish, was that self-determination, sorry, that the right of, right of prior form informed consent, which is a principle in the declaration, was offensive to the sovereignty of the parliament. You know, they were basically telling all the other countries who didn't have good legal advice that if they agreed to Indigenous peoples having the right of prior informed consent or the principle of prior informed consent, then that means that um, all legislation could be vetoed by the peoples. Now, it's an absolute nonsense, uh, but there is an important principle in there that if you're going to enact legislation for the benefit of a particular peoples, shouldn't they be consenting to the legislation? But they've overlooked that that way of looking at it. They're basically just when we are saying this is a veto of the sovereignty of parliament. And the other lie that they wanted to run around with as a pack was that the right of self-determination creates a right of succession. 
So it basically means that um, the Indigenous peoples in a country will now be able to succeed as a result of the declaration. We all knew that that was a nonsense. It's a nonsense legally. There is no such thing in human rights as a right of succession. Um, succession is a political state or a military state um, and so on. But, you know, but peoples have a right to make decisions about their lives, their futures and control that. And that's what self-determination is about. Um, now, why, uh, to try and answer your question, where does it rate, um, why I would call them a mongrel pack is because in May this year, um, before the Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues met for two weeks in New York, these four governments met in Washington, D.C. and made an agreement that they would never, in their terminologies, refer to prior informed consent. They'll only refer to prior informed consultation and that they will never refer to the implementation of the declaration. They will, they will talk about support of the spirit of the declaration. Right, this is a secret pact they made between themselves as to how to undermine what the declaration's about. And um, there was, I got notice back of just a, a meeting that was held about three weeks ago internationally where Australia was present, where they did exactly that, where they refused the document that they were working on to say prior informed consent or implement the declaration. They just kept on getting those words thrown out of it all the time. So, um, you know, there's many reasons as to why governments um, don't represent the people and why they're not democracies. But you can't call Australia a democracy, which everyone loves to call it, if the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are not part of the government decision-making. And if the peoples who are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, the Indigenous peoples in Australia, are treated differently under a different set of laws, under a different set of standards to all the other peoples in Australia, you cannot call it a democracy. You know, I don't care if 20 million get to vote for the government. You know, if it's oppressing 500,000 people, it's not a democracy. And it's actually a major breach in international human rights dialogue in the sense that what, what states call the territorial integrity. No government should interfere in the affairs of another government. The principle of territorial integrity is only, should only be respected where the government is respecting equally the rights of all the peoples. Otherwise, the government can't claim territorial integrity. It's basically saying governments have a right to interfere in the affairs of it. And we've seen the situation with the NATO and the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan and so on, where states have taken upon themselves to breach the principle of territorial integrity to bring the freedoms to the people. Well, I say, come on, NATO. Bomb Australia. T take out the Prime Minister of Australia like they advocate taking out Gaddafi or other people uh, in there. I mean, from, as an Aboriginal person, why would I think any different? Sorry, it's a... I, I say this in amusement, but it's, I'm deadly serious while I'm being amused about it, that, that there's double standards here and it, they're tolerated. They're so easily tolerated and I can't understand why. Thank you so much for Thanks. presenting this evening. Thanks for availing of your time. Thanks for the questions, thanks for your presence. Uh, thanks also to the interpreters who've done an incredible job throughout the preceding day and today and tonight. So a big applause for them. Un applauso. Now, um, we've got dinner for those of you who are coming along. <laughs> it's just over here. Sorry? For those... From, for those of you from the conference um, who've registered for the dinner. Um, so you're um, welcome to move with us as we walk over. Um, 
I'm sure you all had your own questions and thoughts. We would have loved to have provided a little bit more time, but you know, this is a conversation that can ensue and keep going. And you can certainly approach um, Les um, to be able to ask questions. Okay, so um, thank you for coming along. Thank you. Gracias. Muchas gracias. Okay, let's go eat. <laughs>